All right. Hey, let's move on so that we can uh, so we can get done roughly on time. Uh, for part two, we're going to talk about creating an unhurried rule of life. So we've we've sort of diagnosed the problem to some extent, and now we're going to talk more about the practical implications of, of the so what. So what do we do? So here's one of the things I've noticed, and uh, and you guys feel free to grab coffee, cookies, whatever. Um, one of the things I've noticed in both myself and a lot of the folks I've talked to who have read this book is, is this. They flew through the first half of the book, and it like deeply resonated, and I like read it in a day. And then they got to the second part of the book, and this was me as well, that's all about the practical spiritual discipline, spiritual practices, and that's where things kind of ground to a halt. Anybody else have that experience? Any hands? What's that? I know, I know. So, you know, there's this thing where uh, anytime somebody's able to like articulate and illuminate our experience, we want to affirm that. Like we want to say yes and amen to that. But here's the thing, just knowing that there is a problem, like just being intellectually aware of the fact that there's a problem or that we have an issue does not mean we do anything to change it. Like knowing the problem exists, just being aware of it does not necessarily mean that we act in any specific way to uh, affect change. And for many of us, we may affirm everything we just heard and yet leave here tonight and just continue on in our lives of hurry. It's what we do. We're conditioned to behave that way. And it's because intellectual assent does not necessarily produce life change. Intellectual assent does not necessarily produce life change. Just knowing something does not mean that you behave in a certain way. Just because we agree with something doesn't mean we do it. Or just because we espouse something doesn't mean we live it. And there's a word for that, right? Hypocrisy. (laughs) Hypocrisy. And we are all hypocrites, In some way, shape, or form, we all live with some level of hypocrisy. It's true for everyone who believes in Jesus or who would say they believe in Jesus or who would espouse Christian faith. For example, my guess would be for probably most of us here in the room tonight, we would say something like, I believe in the power of prayer. I believe in the power of prayer. Yet, how does that functionally play out in your life? How does it play out for you? In a moment of crisis, is your first stop to hit your knees or is your first stop to try to fix the problem yourself? Because if you're me, it's not to hit my knees. Even though intellectually, I have this set of beliefs that I would claim, that I would affirm, that I would say yes and amen to, that I would espouse, and yet in the moment... What I do is a far better indicator of what I really believe, what I functionally believe. And so I have like these intellectual beliefs, and then I have functional beliefs. I have the things I say I believe, and then I have the things that I actually do. What we do is a far better indicator of what we really believe than what we say is. So unfortunately, just changing your belief system or paradigm, or recognizing or affirming a problem doesn't mean that you're automatically going to do things differently. John Mark Comer 
also just points to the sheer amount of information that we're inundated with on a daily basis. This is something I've, I've taken note of for a while, namely the fact that we hear so much bad news on any given day. Like the amount of terrible news that we get from across the globe on a daily basis, I have no statistics, but it has to be unprecedented in the whole of human history. The fact that we can hear about atrocities and terrible things going on around the globe, and in many cases, we are completely powerless to do anything about them, renders us, I think, into that state of numbness that Tyler was talking about. We have grown accustomed to hearing terrible things without any expectation that we would do anything about it because there's nothing we can do in a lot of cases, right? Whereas in the past... More than likely, if you received bad news, it was because it was something that affected you directly or it affected your tribe or community or region at the very least directly. But, but now we hear about things and, and we hear about them in a moment, right? Like information spreads like wildfire. And there's probably a video of it happening as well today. So we not only hear about it, we see the terrible things that happen around our globe. So, so there's just this sheer inundation of content, both good and bad, that we're receiving like at any moment. And so Comer notes three big problems related to this. First of all, we have more information than any other generation in human history, uh, good and bad. Secondly, we have so much information, we often feel overwhelmed by the vast terabytes of news constantly assailing us via our phones and devices. And then this creates a paralysis in us. We then grow accustomed to this paralysis and live with it as our default. We're used to hearing new information, even being moved by such information, and then doing absolutely nothing about it. Do you have that experience? Because, I mean, here's one for me. I constantly see people posting on Facebook about children who are sick or like crowdfunding that's going on to pay for children's medical expenses. This is, I mean, for me, this is something that like just, I mean, just rips my heart out. I have, I have five girl or four girls at this point. I've got a fifth one. More than likely it's a girl on the way. <laughs> We're just going to put our money on girl. Man, I, but I see, I see every day like children who I don't know I don't know their families. I have no relational connection to their families, but I I hear about what's going on. And I'm just, so it's just this massive amount of information. That's just one example that pops into my head when we're talking about this. And so the question is, what do we do? And and so what I want to talk about tonight is creating an unhurried rule of life. If you've read the book, you've, you've seen that language of a rule of life. It's not rules for life. It's the idea of a structure that, or a system that creates uh, the opportunity for me to like, start practicing some of these things in my life. So, so the example or the analogy is that of a trellis. Like a trellis is something that holds up a vine. If you've ever been to wine country, you've seen the vineyards and you've seen the trellises that support the like, you know, f- fragile and intricate branches of 
grapevines. And so the same thing is the case here. What are some practices that we can put in place in our lives that become a trellis for us? That's sort of like that story in the Old Testament of Moses having to have his arms held up so that the Israelites would prevail in battle. What are the things that we have in our lives that in the same way like hold our arms up? So one, that we can stay true as individuals to the gospel of Jesus and to the gospel mission that he's given to all of us, but also just so that we can intentionally spend time with him, grow deeper in our maturity in Christ. What are like the intentional things we have in place in our lives to uh, help us to do those things? So an unhurried rule of life. Comer spends the second half of this book talking about four key spiritual practices. I like that word practice as opposed to the word discipline. Discipline sounds punitive to us. Uh, in our modern language. I like the word practice because these things are practices. We are more than likely not great at all of these. And with some of them, we may just be downright terrible. So how do we get better at anything? We practice, right? So in order to get better, we've got to do it. We've got to do it with some level of regularity, and we've got to do it with some level of intentionality as well. So I'm going to hit on all four of those tonight. I also want to direct you guys, because I'm pulling some of this content from this resource. Uh, he has a little addendum to this book that's just a PDF online, and it's called How to Unhurry. And so it's a little bit more of a practical, how do we actually practice some of these things? And so I'm going to allude to some of the very intentional practices that he talks about in that PDF. But if you just Google How to Unhurry, it's going to be the first thing that comes up, and you can download it. So... So as we get going in this, I think we have to understand something extremely significant and important about Christianity, or we will fail to get the point of these practices. And it's this. Christianity is an ancient Eastern faith system. Christianity is an ancient Eastern faith system. In other words, it is not modern. It is definitely not Western. It's not American. And yet... We try to treat it like it is. We try to interact with this faith as if it's something that's been produced by our consumeristic, materialistic, democratic, Western culture. And that presents a problem. I think there are a number of ways that this fleshes out for us, but for our purposes tonight, here's perhaps the most significant difference between an ancient Eastern system and a modern Western system. We are all people who are living after the period in human history known as the Enlightenment. We're all living after the period known as the Scientific Revolution. We're currently living in what has been called the Information Age. And as a result, our focus is so often on the mind. It's so often on the intellect. Way before our focus is on the body. We think about what do I need to know before we think, what do I need to do? That's our default. Whether you realize it or not, as a people, we tend to believe that what we know will ultimately influence what we do. However, an Eastern approach to life would perhaps flip that script and say that what you do will actually influence what you know. What you do will actually influence what you know. So thus an Eastern mindset would say you cannot have a spiritual life without engaging in spiritual practices. And I don't mean like esoteric 
spiritual practices. I mean like embodied spiritual practices. So where do we turn to figure out how to engage in spiritual practices or what kind of spiritual practices we should be engaged in? What do we do exactly? We look to Christ. We look to Jesus and his example. Jesus tells his disciples very clearly that he has given them an example to follow, that their lives should be patterned after his, that they should look to him to take their cues on how to live and be. So that's exactly what he does in the book. He brings four key spiritual practices to the surface. These all come from the life of Christ. Silence and solitude, Sabbath, simplicity, and finally, slowing. And if we remember anything about these, remember this. This is primarily about following Jesus. This is primarily about being a disciple, an apprentice to Jesus. This is not a self-help plan, this, uh, even though it will help you. It's not another set of to-dos on an already long list. This is like a child looking to a parent to learn how to speak, to learn how to walk. This is a servant looking to the guidance of his master. This is what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 11 when he says, Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. In some older translations, it's described as an easy yoke or an easy burden. It's like an oxymoron in a way, right? An easy burden that Jesus brings to us when we keep company with him. So this is about keeping company with Christ. And so let's jump in. First, silence and solitude. What prevents you from having times of silence and solitude? Take just two minutes around the table real quick. Don't go into big stories. Just what in your life right now prevents you from having times of quiet and times of alone? All right, guys. So John Mark Comer says that there are two types of silence. There are two types of silence. There's external silence, like this, there's, there's physically no noise going on around me. And then there's internal silence. And I find that it's somewhat easy to achieve times of external silence. It's far more difficult to achieve internal silence. And again, Eastern thought here would be that what you do ultimately will lead to what happens within you. What you do externally will ultimately lead to what happens internally, even though it's going to take time. If you've ever been to a yoga class, you know that people don't come in off the street like able to do all of the different yoga positions. What do they call it? They call it a practice, right? 
It's a practice. If I keep going, if I keep trying, I'm going to get better. And so just a few tips as you keep pressing on and pursuing silence and solitude, which, just so we're clear, is, is being quiet internally and externally, and also being alone, spending intentional time alone. Here's a few tips. First of all, first thing in the morning, and I have no doubt that there are those of you who go, I just can't get up first thing in the morning. No, what you're saying is, I can't do that right now. But if we're looking to Christ, if we're looking to his example and what he modeled for us, this is one of the more explicit parts of his spiritual life that we see in the scriptures is that Jesus got up early before it was daylight and before anybody else was awake and he would leave the house. He would go away to like a desolate place. So he wouldn't just get up and drink coffee on the couch. Jesus would get up and leave and go be alone. So early in the morning, he's practicing silence and solitude. And listen, if we're looking to Christ as our example, then I think we should start here. Um, I would not suggest, oh, let me stay up late after my spouse goes to bed and after my kids go to bed. I'm an advocate. Guys, go to bed together. Go to bed earlier and wake up early and spend time alone and in silence in the morning. It's one of the things that Comer recommends as well. And then in terms of the place, obviously it just needs to be as quiet and distraction-free as possible. In our house, that can be a big challenge. Uh, I get up at five every morning. I mean, it's something that I've done for years. What I've learned is that if I get up after everybody else is up, it's hard for me to be nice to people. It's true. And so if I want to be nice to people, I tell my kids this, in order for me to be nice to you today, dad gets up early. And so 4.35 is not unusual for me. It, it used to be super unusual. I used to be more of a, I'm going to bed 11, 12 every night type person. That's completely changed now. And it took time. It was a process. But now, like, I'm, I'm kind of irritable if I don't get this. It's become such a part of my daily life. It's one of the few things on this list that I actually am able to accomplish with some level of regularity. So as quiet and distraction-free as possible, where's that space for you? What does it look like? And, and just a few tips to go along with that. Start where you're at, not where you should be. Don't be frustrated by the fact that you're not where you want to be right now. If you can only do five minutes, then great, do five minutes. You can only do 10 minutes, do 10 minutes. Start there, gently move forward, have a lot of grace for yourself. Beware of idealism and perfectionism and overreaching. Um, we grow in, in these small incremental steps. And, and we look back and we see over time how all of those things have come together, but they don't happen overnight. Habits become character over time in small incremental steps. And we're talking years, not days, maybe not even weeks, but years. And so we have to think with the whole of my life in mind, right? I've got my whole life to practice these things, but don't put them off. Let's jump in now and be moving towards them. Secondly, resist the urge to say, I'm bad at this, or I can't do this. 
Um, I also have a spiritual director um, that I meet with every few months, and, and I was complaining uh, to her recently that I just I feel like I'm bad at prayer. I feel like I'm bad at prayer. Prayer is probably one of my biggest areas of unbelief. It's the one thing that I often feel like, does this do anything? Does this really work? And so I, I, and I'm a three on the Enneagram, so I like want to win and I want to be successful and I want you to perceive me as being successful. And, and I was, I, I told her, I said, I just want to be good at this. And she said, what does that even mean? What does it mean to be good at prayer? And, and she said, are you, are you saying that you want to win at prayer? And I was like, yeah, I, yes, I want to win prayer. And, and, but that's how I think, like I need, like I need goals, I, but, but this isn't a, I'm good at it or I'm not good at it. This is, we're all bad at all of these things. We're all getting better by God's grace, but he is the one who's working this out in us. So resist that urge to say, I can't do this or I'm bad at this. And then, and then finally, realize that practicing silence and solitude does not mean doing nothing. I think, I think for some people, you hear these things and you think, so I just sit in a chair for 10 minutes? You can do that if you want to, but just because you're being quiet and you're alone does not mean that you're not doing anything. And so in the book, or in the PDF I was mentioning, How to Unhurry, uh, he gives a variety of suggestions for things that you could try out during your times of silence and solitude. One of those is called breathing prayer. He mentions this in the book as well, um, breathing in and, and mentally dwelling on or meditating on the things that you maybe imagine breathing in and breathing out uh, the negative emotions or feelings uh, that you want to breathe out. Listening prayer is another one. Uh, there's one called Lectio Divina, which is basically scripture reading, but reading scripture in a meditative way where I'm going I'm to read a passage of scripture and then I'm just going to sit with it and I'm going to mull it over and I'm going to ruminate on it. And I'm going to toss words around in my head and I'm going to ask the Lord to speak to me through it. Another one is taking spiritual retreats. Um, and so I would encourage you guys, download the PDF and, and start trying to practice some of those things. And you're going to find your sweet spot over time. You're going to find the practices that work for you. It's, it's not this list of you got to do all of these things. It's, it's what works for you. How do you connect with the heart of God? And what's clear in the scriptures is we're the body of Christ. We've all been created differently and with different uh, personalities and gifts and talents. And I think that we've all been created with different ways that we most naturally interact with our Father in heaven. So the next practice. I think we walked through some of those. The next one is Sabbath. Sabbath is a 24-hour period of restful worship by which we cultivate a restful spirit in all of our life. It's the only one on this list that is an actual command of God. It's the only one we find in the Ten Commandments. It's something that the Scripture says was created for us. And yet my guess is for everybody in this room, we do not have an intentional day of Sabbath that we guard and that we hold to week after week. There are four practices of Sabbath that Comer talks about. The first is that we stop. I think I have these. We stop, we cease from all working, all thinking about working, all worrying and all wanting. We rest. 
We rest our soul, meaning our whole person. Physical, we sleep. Mental and emotional, we calm down, relax, process the week. Spiritual, we cease our striving and rest in God's love for us through abiding. So we stop, we rest, we delight, we pamper our soul with activities that spark joy, wonder, gratitude, and happiness, such as eating good food, amen, walking in nature, spending time with family or friends, listening to music, playing games, making love to our spouse, or just having fun before God. And in worship, we index our heart toward grateful praise and adoration of God, and we surrender our life to Him one week at a time. I read a book, uh, it's been a while back, uh, by a guy who was writing to pastors, and he was talking about the fact that as a pastor, and my friend Raymond and I have talked about this a lot, as a pastor, if I broke any of the Ten Commandments, I would be fired from my church. I would probably be, never be hired by another church again, with the exception of one. If I broke the Sabbath, then I'd quite possibly get a raise, is what this guy said in the book. And it's so true. If I cheat on my spouse, if I lie, if I take the name of the Lord in vain, I mean, you go through the list, but you get to that one, and for some reason, it's the one that we all kind of go, eh. Why is it that we take the other ones so seriously? Lying, murder, but we get to Sabbath, and for some reason, we have no use for that. We honestly, I think, struggle to see the benefit in it. And and yet, if we approached it in the way that Comer's talking about here, if it's a day of stopping and resting and delighting and worshiping God, and it's something we guard and we protect it, and we stop doing other things so that we can do that. What could that look like in your life? I love this. We index our heart toward grateful praise and adoration of God, and we surrender our life to him one week at a time. One week at a time. The next is simplicity. Here's his definition. Simplicity, also called minimalism, is a way of life where we intentionally prioritize the things that really matter by cutting out all that is ancillary and stripping our life down to make abiding the center of everything. It's a life of focus in a cultural moment of distraction. It's intentionally living with less to make space for more of what we most value before God. I I don't, he, he uses this word minimalism. I think that's a confusing word maybe for some of us. I don't really love the word minimalism because when I hear the word minimalism, I think of like the, the sort of like materialistic movement that has been going on in our culture over the last few years, which is, is really all about like just, just getting rid of your stuff to have less stuff and that somehow there is more joy in having less stuff. It's the, it's the KonMari thing. And, and what I want to just mention here, because I think this is something that people miss, Um, materialism has nothing to do with how much or how little you have. Materialism is all about the focus being on the material thing. And so when you say, I get rid of anything in my house that doesn't, quote, spark joy, that is a materialistic thing to do, even though you are getting rid of material possessions. Does that make sense? 
So you are, you are just as much a materialist as somebody who has 40 vehicles when you are intentionally whittling down your capsule wardrobe, right, to, to just the bare essentials and, 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 and going, this is where joy is found is a false gospel, right? You may not think of it in that way, but when I say I find my joy in either having or not having things, then materialism is becoming a gospel to you. And, and just having less does not make you more spiritual, right? And, and so I just want to kind of throw that caveat out here because when he uses that word, that's what I think about. And I think it's just something we need to maybe uh, tweak a little bit. But I want to draw from Richard Foster. Richard Foster is, I, I think, the king of writers when it comes to writing about spiritual discipline. Somebody gave me his book called Celebration of Discipline when I was a freshman in college, and it, it was truly a revelation to me. I found an autographed copy of it at the Centenary Book Bazaar a few years ago, and I was giddy like a schoolgirl, and no one else cared. No one else cared that I'd found an autographed copy of Celebration of Discipline. But here's what Richard Foster says. This is from his book called Freedom of Simplicity, which if you want to dig deeper into this topic is the book to read. Christian simplicity is not just a faddish attempt to respond to the ecological holocaust that threatens to engulf us, nor is it born out of a frustration with technocratic obesity. It is a call given to every Christian the witness to simplicity is profoundly rooted in the biblical tradition and most perfectly exemplified in the life of Jesus Christ. It is a natural and necessary outflow of the good news of the gospel having taken root in our lives. So I, I think that's a fantastic definition. The four areas of simplicity that Comer uh, points out for us are clothing, stuff, Papers, which uh, he includes things like photographs and things like that, and then budget and schedule. And in the How to Unhurry PDF, he goes into some detail um, on each of these things and maybe some practices that you can put in place. More than likely, all of us need to get rid of some stuff. But again, the purpose of getting rid of stuff is not to find joy. Uh, the purpose of getting rid of stuff is so that my focus is not on these things. Right? So that I'm not having to give emotional, spiritual attention to material possessions in my life. Also, and I think this is part of what Foster was talking about when he talks about, he uses these big words, the ecological holocaust and you know, technocratic obesity. Part of what he ultimately gets at in that book is that to some extent, those of us who have a lot of things and a lot of money, the scriptures say much is expected of us. And if we hold all of those things and hoard those things, even, we may, even though we may not be hoarders in a modern sense, then, then we are dismissing what Christ calls us to because he's given us those things for the good of other people. So it's not just getting rid of them so that we're happier. It's also getting rid of them so that other people can be blessed. So spend some time uh, in that PDF. Uh, budget and schedule, I would think, is going to be a big one for many of us in this room. So what does that actually look like for you? How much of what you have is leaving your home for the good of others? How much of your time, how much of your money, how much of your stuff, how much of your clothing is leaving your home for the good of others?
Um, and we were going to stop and talk about this, but just for the sake of time, we won't. But one to maybe dialogue with your spouse about which of those four areas of simplicity is actually the most complex in your life? Which of those areas is not simple at all for you? Is it budget? Is it schedule? Is it stuff? Is it clothes? Finally, tonight, and Comer talks about this being sort of a newer spiritual discipline, even though we very clearly see it in the life of Jesus. Tyler talked about it a little bit. It's slowing. Uh, slow down your body, slow down your soul. This is the motto of slowing, an emerging practice in, in the Western world. While you still won't find it on any of the standard lists of spiritual disciplines, it still fits the definition of a practice based on the life and teachings of Jesus. Jesus was never in a hurry. His slow, deliberate pace created room in his life for the interruptions that became the stories of the four Gospels. Uh, We mentioned maybe the woman that grabbed the hem of his garment. I mean, it happens so often that Jesus is on his way somewhere else. Jesus has intention. Like Jesus, Jesus isn't just walking around aimlessly just to see who's going to come up to him or who he might interact with. So often Jesus is headed somewhere. He's got a purpose. He's got somebody he's going to see. But yet for some reason, he is perfectly happy to be pulled off course. And if you're like me, that's deeply frustrating. That's deeply frustrating. Like, I'm a creature of routine. I like things to happen in kind of the same way every day at roughly the same times every day. And when, like, like a wrench gets thrown into that, like, it can really mess up my attitude for the day. I don't know if you're that way or not. Jesus doesn't seem bothered by people grabbing him, by people calling out to him, by people trying to pull him off course to attend to their need. And part of this practice of slowing is that, man, I, and this really gets to that word hurry, I'm not rushing around at such a frantic pace all the time. I'm not doing that to the level that I can't be pulled off course when there's real need. And yet, for so many of us, we blow past real need that we may see or an opportunity to help Because we have an agenda. We have something we're moving towards. We have a purpose. So slowing is about, one, recognizing that and then doing something about it. John Ortberg, again, says, it's about cultivating patience by deliberately choosing to place ourselves in positions where we simply have to wait. And some of these are honestly crazy to me. (laughs) Like, I read through some of these and I just go, oh my gosh, What John Mark Comer says is that we need to pick out one or two. He calls them games. Here are some of his games. One, drive the speed limit. (laughs) Lindsay, be be quiet. Uh, Get into the slow lane, uh, like at the grocery store. What's the longest line at the grocery store? Get into that one. Come to a full stop at stop signs. Don't text and drive. Show up 10 minutes early for an appointment sans phone. Get into the longest line at the grocery store. Um, Those sound miserable to me. I don't know about you. Here's this word discipline, though, right? It's not always fun, but it grows us. Like, I think it develops us in some way. We're seeking the heart of Christ We're seeking to emulate him, model our lives after him. What does that look like? 
Second, cut one to three things out of your schedule, TV, social media, time online, video games, extra social obligations. Those things are just low-hanging fruit. What are things you can cut out of your schedule? Next, turn your smartphone into a dumb phone. He goes into some detail in the book. You can also look online to figure out how to turn your smartphone into a dumb phone or get rid of your smartphone altogether, get a flip phone. There are a lot of different options out there today. Um, and, and then finally, parent your dumb phone. He talks some about this. Put it to bed, right? Not next to your bed. Put it in a drawer. You know, don't, don't take it with you everywhere you go. Use it at certain times. Don't use it at other times. And... Um, So these are the four spiritual practices that he illuminates. These are not the only spiritual practices that are out there. These are not the only spiritual disciplines. You notice he doesn't spend a lot of time talking about what would be thought of as the traditional spiritual disciplines like prayer and fasting and worship and the reading of scripture. Like the intention is, I think, as we're engaging these four spiritual practices, silence and solitude, that, that we are engaging the other disciplines in the midst of that. Does that make sense? So, all right, we're going to stop here for tonight. I'd love, guys, just to, and I know we're just right at time, but before we get out of here tonight, I would love to just hear real quick, what has this book meant to you? Um, is there something major? Is there like a major point that you're taking away from this? Is there something that you're like, I'm, I'm trying to apply this to my life right now? Just, just real quick, some feedback. What, in what way has this book spoken to you? All right, two things real quick. One, thank you guys for being here tonight. Uh, It's been great to just dialogue with you some about all this. I hope it's been helpful to you, and I hope you've enjoyed it. Um, We would love to continue to make this a free event. If you have the ability to uh, maybe give something to help us do that, uh, we'd really appreciate it. There's a giving box that you could hit on your way out, or you can just go to covenantshreveport.org and uh, click give. Uh, That'll help us to give books away and keep food free and childcare and all that kind of stuff in the future. Our next book club is going to be probably uh, March or April. We've not set an actual date yet, but here's the next book we're going to be reading. And um, well, for some reason it didn't come up. Uh, The next book we're going to be reading is called Confronting Christianity. Um, 12 questions uh, that are hard questions. Um, What about violence? Um, what about sexual issues, gender issues? Um, for some of you, even if you're a follower of Christ, uh, these are questions that go unanswered for you sometimes. They're questions that kind of linger in the back of your mind, the what-ifs, the doubts. Um, this was Christianity's today, Christianity Today's Book of the Year uh, this past year. And um, so grab it. We'll have some copies here at the church here in a week or so. Um, so if you want to grab one here for free, you can, or uh, I encourage you to go online, grab it. It's called Confronting Christianity. And um, more than likely, you have friends in your life who are also asking some of these same questions. And um, it'd be great to invite them to read it with you and maybe dialogue about it some as you walk through it. And then to come to our next book club event and get to be a part of this. So, hey, I'm going to pray for us and uh, we're going to get out of here, okay? Uh, Father, thank you so much for your goodness and grace. Thank you for these friends and just for your chance to talk about the life that you have called us to. And God, we are all pilgrims. We are all on a journey. And I pray, Father, that um, as you give us grace, that you would also help us to have grace for ourselves. Um, Yet at the same time, Father, uh, inspire our hearts to devote um, 
a considerable portion of our life to this. If, if your gospel is true and if you are real, then why would we not dedicate a significant portion of our life to knowing you and seeking to follow you? And so, God, give us that heart. Give us those desires. Help us to uh, eliminate distraction. Help us to put sin to death. Uh, lead us through the power of your Holy Spirit. And we ask all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Love